the whole emphasis that Jesus is trying to convey to Peter is, do you really love me and do you understand what that means? At the same time, he's reinstating Peter, saying, Peter, you're forgiven. Peter, I still want you to be my leader. Otherwise, he would not then respond by saying, ten my lambs, ten my sheep. Do you love me? These four words help reinstate Peter as we continue with Life's Meaning and Purpose, an in-depth study of the Gospel of John. Hello and welcome to the Transforming Lives Together podcast. What we love ultimately defines who we are and shapes the course of our life. We were made to love God and to love our neighbor, but because of the fall, our hearts were bent inward to love of self. In this ruined condition, we, on our own, are incapable of reordering our loves. So God takes the initiative through the person of Christ, which then enables us to respond in faith. We can see this in the exchange between our Lord and Peter in our lesson for this week. Christ asked the same question three times, not only to reverse Peter's denial, but to reinstate him and prepare him for what's ahead. Before we turn it over to Father Ward, we would like to thank you for your time as you tune in each week. We pray you are blessed and encouraged by the content of this podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes. And if you have enjoyed what you're hearing from this podcast, please help us out by leaving a five-star rating and review. Your positive feedback will help us reach more people with this podcast. And now with this week's lesson in the Gospel of John, here is Father Ward. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you for today. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We thank you for the apostles who were faithful. Help us to be faithful in our generation and help us to take to heart what we learned tonight. That the resurrection is not a mere fable or fantasy tale, but it's a real event that resulted in changed lives and that ultimately resulted in a changed world. We thank you that we are part of that change. Pray that you continue to uh, work in, you, in us your perfect will. Be with us too as we travel this evening. And bless all those who wanted to come but couldn't. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John 21, I entitled it, uh, Do You Love Me? Uh, Because Jesus asked this question three times to the Apostle Peter. Do you love me? I think that would be, if I was going to take any phrase out of John 21, that would be the key phrase. Because that's the ultimate issue for all of us once we recognize who Jesus is. He loves us. Do we love Him? And there's a reason why Jesus asked the question three times to Peter. We're going to find that reason in a moment, but I'm getting ahead of myself. But just as a little background, remember the purpose of John's Gospel. We looked at it last week. John 20, verses 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. The two key verses that highlight this mission statement in terms of the purpose for why Jesus came 
And what it means to have a, a relationship with him would be John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now Jesus came for many reasons. The ultimate overarching reason he gives to Pilate, remember in John 18 when Pilate questions Jesus and, and he says, so are you a king? And he says, yes, I am a king. For this reason I've been born. But Jesus also says that I have come to testify to the truth. So everything that Jesus does is to reveal the truth about who he is, about who the, his Father is and the Holy Spirit, the nature of God, as well as the nature of life and our future. And so we've gone over these. Just uh, This is all review. And remember, the, most of Jesus, or a lot of Jesus' ministry was in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, but John focuses uh, a good portion of Jesus' ministry in uh, Jerusalem and in Judea. In fact, half of John's Gospel is, uh, takes place on the night before Jesus dies as well as His death and His resurrection and then the post-resurrection. Tonight, John chapter 21 highlights Jesus' third post-resurrection appearance to the disciples as a group. If you would, open up your uh, Bible. If you brought your Bible, it's John chapter 21. If you have not, you can just uh, turn to uh, page uh, 10... Eight six. Thank you in your uh, Bibles. So we see Jesus appears at the Sea of Galilee. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Sea of Tiberias is another uh, name for the Sea of Galilee. And he manifested himself in this way: Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. So we have seven of the apostles. And it's interesting, but uh, five of the, the first five are referred to in John's Gospel in previous um, passages. We all know Peter. We know Thomas. Nathaniel, or our patron saint uh, Bartholomew, same uh, apostle. The sons of Zebedee would be James and John. Now, who would be the other two? Other uh, Who would be the other two? We, we don't know for sure, but most likely they would be Philip and Andrew. Andrew is Peter's brother, uh, Philip, they were both fishermen, and remember they're mentioned several times in John's Gospel. So you have seven of the apostles, and they're back in Galilee fishing. Why are they back in Galilee? Well, Jesus had commanded them to go back in, uh, to Galilee after he rose from, uh, from the dead. They also uh, were probably uh, make, looking to make uh, a living, get fish, food, kind of doing what they're accustomed to do. Now, there are commentators or or scholars over the years have debated as to whether or not Peter should have gone back to fishing and, and then convincing the other six to go and do likewise. And so one school of thought is that Peter was going back to his old ways and that Peter wasn't really interested in, in building the kingdom at that point until you know, Jesus kind of set the record straight. Uh, I, think that's over, I, I think that's over analyzing things. So they kind of look at it as, well, the disciples are just moving in the flesh and they're not following the Lord. And I, I just think that's a lot of, you're making a lot of assumptions. Uh, I think rather they're, they're doing what uh, they are used to doing. They're waiting for further directions from the Lord. And that's exactly uh, what happens. So we, uh, 
Continue read verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. Now, yes, that's significant. You know, they're not having a good, a good evening at it. That's why some would say, ah, see, they're not really finding the Lord because they're not being successful here. So as you might imagine, as the night goes through and by the, they're going to be soaked, they're going to be wet, they're going to be tired, exhausted, they're going to be frustrated. And so then we read in verse 4, but when the day was now breaking, so sunrise was, was coming, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Now why would they not know it was Jesus? Because Jesus was at least 100 yards away, the sun wasn't fully up. You had possible fog, and yet you have some commentators who say, well, Jesus was not making himself known to them. Was, I mean, again, that's, I think, going over. They want to believe that that's fine, but that's over. I mean, it's just practically speaking. They didn't know it was Jesus. He's on the shore. Even when he yells out to them. And so, I'm sure, though, they start getting a hunch because verse 5, we read, So Jesus said to him, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? Now literally in the Greek, that's uh, it would be translated, uh, You don't have anything to eat, do you? So you see, they were going fishing, not simply to make a living. I think they were fishing to get some food. And we'll see why in a moment. And they answered, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. Now, I had put in what a commentator had written about fishing, that the right, hand, the right side was not an ideal side. It was not the side they were used to fishing on. And so, by him saying that, that would mean that they would have to make a decision. Are they going to do something that, that's not normal? Also, Jesus may very well have known that there was a larger school of fish on the right side. So throw out those nets. And so they listen, and then they obey. And the result of them obeying, we read, so they cast, uh, they, uh, so they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. So he said, you know, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. They did it, and there's this huge number of fish, so much so that they can't even put it on the boat. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and remember, that's always a reference to the author of the Gospel, that's John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work. You know, you would take the outer garment out, off because that would allow free range of motion and movement to be able to do your fishing. And so in that excitement, and that's so typical of Peter, in his exuberance, he doesn't wait. He just jumps in the water and he goes towards the shore. Verse 8, But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Now who did all that? That was Jesus. That's pretty remarkable when you think of the God of the universe, the Lord of all, making breakfast for man. 
It highlights not only the personal nature of Jesus and the intimate nature that God, of our God, and that he desires a personal relationship with each person, yet he is Lord of all, but it also points us to the Garden of Eden. Remember when God made Adam and Eve, he made them in his image, and he gave them everything they needed for life, fullness of blessing. And it also reminds us that the God of the universe Though he may seem remote, he isn't because this whole world is designed for uh, life, for not only sustaining life, but for enjoying life. You think of the diversity of creation. You think of all the wonderful things that are there and the potential. It's amazing. And we keep discovering new things. And so the same God who made the universe is now the God who's making breakfast for some men that he loves. And so Jesus says to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Verse 11, Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Now, there's a a number of things that we can get from this. First of all, uh, Simon Peter, he was a pretty uh, strong guy. Because to drag a net of 153 fish, that's like about 300 pounds, you know, from onto the shore, and they're used to doing this. So these aren't a bunch of wimps, all right? These are strong fishermen. And the 153 is significant because, again, it, it highlights the fact this is an eyewitness account. John is saying, hey, we counted the fish, which was not unusual for fishermen. They would always count the fish. Uh, now, some have wondered what does this 153 is there a significance because usually numbers in the scriptures do have some sort of significance and while you know there have been attempts the most common attempt is to say that the 153 represent 153 gentile nations uh so i mean uh, you know, i i would like to see the breakdown i think i did one time but you know, i don't know i mean i think more you could say it represents the gentiles no doubt I think it would, for me personally, I would think it just means that John was there. It was, you know, they counted the fish and that's the significance. But, but it wouldn't surprise me if there is not some sort of significance to the number. But I haven't done enough research to really try to, to uh, and again, that's really not the main point here. The point is that when we follow Jesus, good things are going to happen. When we follow Jesus, there's a blessing. When we follow Jesus, the net doesn't get torn. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to have hardship. It just means that God's hand's going to be on you. And if the disciples are going to continue on in the work that God has called them to do, they have to make sure that Jesus is front and center of everything they do. And we're going to see how this point is reiterated several times as we continue in this last chapter. So verse uh, 12, Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, Who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. Now, this is not the same as the Lord's Supper. There is no um, sacramental aspect to this. This is simply Jesus showing love for the disciples, also hearkening back to his miraculous provision of the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, where he provided fish and bread for the multitudes. 
So it's kind of in that same vein. In Luke's Gospel, uh, we read that Jesus ate a piece of broiled fish, very possibly referring to this account, even though in this account, John doesn't say that Jesus ate, but obviously it's assumed because he's having breakfast for them, so I'm sure he ate. And, and so Luke's Gospel, again, when you look at the other three synoptic Gospels when it comes to the resurrection, outside of Luke's description of the two disciples on their way to Emmaus, uh, the road to Emmaus, um, it isn't as detailed as John's account. So John's given us all these details. So Jesus by giving them fish and bread, not only highlighting the personal nature of God, not only highlighting God's love and concern for us, not only highlighting that God is our provider, not only highlighting that God will bless us, but it also highlights the importance of relationships between one another because one of the reasons why God created food was not simply to sustain us, but was to bring us together. The reason why God brought food is to stimulate fellowship amongst ourselves. The reason why God gave us food is to, so we can show our love for one another, not only in our company, but in making food for each other, by serving one another. You see, food isn't just food for living. Food isn't just to stuff your face. Food isn't just for all the variety, even though it's, not, it's great. I mean, that's another thing. But food is to bring us together. And when you think about it, when can families really come together? It used to be everyone came together around the table until we had all the little distractions of the television and the radio and the, and the phones and all this other stuff, computers, so that you have some families where, you know, uh, John is in his room and Mary's in her room and dad's in the kitchen and mom's in the basement cleaning, uh, you know, and everybody's just doing their own thing. It's not good. So food's meant to bring us together and to teach us service and love. That's why Jesus had breakfast. One of the reasons why Jesus had breakfast with his disciples. One of the final acts that he did before he ascended uh, into heaven. And so, we read in verse 14, this is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples. Not the third post-resurrection appearance, because he had appeared to the women, appeared to the uh, two on the road to Emmaus, appeared in other situations, but this was the third time that he appeared to a group of disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now we find out a little bit more about the conversation. Verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? So Jesus begins by asking Peter an important question. Do you love me? But he says more than these. Who are the these? Actually, it can be understood three ways. The these could be the fish in the boats, but that's probably not it, right? Because it's, all, it's already understood that we don't love the material. We love God and we love our neighbor. So more than these can refer then to the disciples, his fellow disciples. But it also can be translated, do you love me more than these do? In other words, do you love me even more than what these guys love me? Now, of course, one of the drawbacks on that is its comparison, but it kind of harkens back to when Peter says that I'm, gonna, I'm not going to deny you, Lord. It uh, doesn't matter what everybody else does. I'm going to be right there with you. And we know how that ended up. 
He denied the Lord three times before the cock crowed. And so Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me, to reverse what happened with the three denials. And Jesus does that to teach not just Peter, but the disciples there. Not just Peter and the disciples there, but for all of us. That's why it's recorded. We can learn a lot from these three questions and then Peter's responses. And so Jesus... And not just Peter's responses, but then uh, Jesus' commands. Because after each question, Peter responds and then Jesus gives a command. So, Jesus says, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Peter, that is, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. So when you look at the Greek, it's interesting when you break it down. In the first two instances where Jesus says, do you love me? The Greek word that is used is agapeo. It's agape love, unconditional love. The third time that Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? The love there is phileo which is friendship love. You know, we get the word Philadelphia from. Now, some may say that, is there a significance there? I think there is, because agape is that divine love. It's the superior love. And Jesus uses it the first two times, but then he closes with phileo. Others would say, well, it's not as big of a difference because phileo and agapeo are used interchangeably in different contexts throughout John's Gospel. But... What I, if, if you take it a little step further and you look at it, basically what Jesus is asking Peter is, do you love me unconditionally? The love that I have for you. Um, Peter says, yes, Lord. Then again, yes, Lord. But then Jesus basically says, do you love me as a friend? And so in a way, it was getting Peter to think, are you really serious about this? Or are you just, again, answering in a superficial kind of, oh, I can do it way, not understanding the magnitude of what I'm asking you. That's why Peter gets frustrated after the third time, because the love is different. Now, you need to know that in Aramaic, there was no difference in terms of love like there was in Greek. And they weren't talking in Greek, they were talking in Aramaic. So when Peter was responding love, and Jesus was responding, love, it would be like in the English. So, what then you have to ask yourself is, John, who wrote this, who was there, was he actually, um, did he understand what was going on there in terms of the nuances because he was there? Uh, and very well uh, could be, because there's a reason why there's that order. They, 
John just wouldn't use them interchangeably in a context. They might be used interchangeably in different parts, but when they're in, in the same uh, event, same interchange, and you're using it specifically, agape, agape, boom, phileo, there's the point that's being made. Now this idea of loving Jesus is huge because Jesus said in John 13 and then in 15, just as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And so the love that we are to show is that agape love ultimately. Now it's going to be shown in friendship love, but the heart of it should stem from God's love, you see? So, I mean, it's very hard for me with a friend to show unconditional love unless I'm put in those contexts, in those situations. And so, the whole emphasis that Jesus is trying to convey to Peter is, do you really love me and do you understand what that means? At the same time, he's reinstating Peter, saying, Peter, you're forgiven. Peter, I still want you to be my leader. Otherwise, he would not then respond by saying, tend my lambs. Tend my sheep. Lambs, young. Sheep, older. So what is Jesus telling Peter? That you are responsible for nurturing and leading the flock, the church, both the young believers, the new believers, as well as the mature. Now, tending just means kind of taking care of them. Bringing them to pasture, making sure that they have food. The second command, though, is different. He says, shepherd my sheep. That means you're overseeing them. That means you're not just taking care of their spiritual needs, but you're overseeing them. And that's the call of Peter. But it isn't just the call of Peter. It's the call of all leaders in the church. We are called to be shepherds. In fact, Peter later writing in his first uh, letter, we have Peter write this, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. Isn't that great? Peter is not some all end-all, be-all leader. He's important. He is the first leader of the church. But look at what he says. I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. So again, Peter's an eyewitness. And a partaker also the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And that's what Jesus is, the reason why Jesus is doing all this with Peter is that he's going to be an example to the flock. So that the same questions that Jesus is asking Peter is the same question he asked all of us. And then if you're a leader, you have that responsibility to tend the lambs to tend the sheep, to shepherd both lambs and sheep. And when the chief shepherd, who's the chief shepherd? Jesus appears. You will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, the chief shepherd appears. That's the second coming. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The reason why that's in capital letters is, again, the New American Standard Version if you have a New American Standard Bible, whenever you see capital letters in the New Testament, it's a reference to the fact that the writer is quoting the Hebrew Scriptures of the Old Testament. So, the other thing too that's interesting is that 
um, Peter responds um, back with to the Lord, uh, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. The first two times that he says, you know, in the Greek it's oida, which is for a fact. The last, gnosko, is you know experientially. So Peter, in his frustration, was saying, Lord, you already know that. You know it, but come on, you know it. You, you know who I am. You've seen it. Uh, and so this is kind of the, the nuances that are going on in this back and forth. But Jesus is pressing Peter because he is letting Peter know that there's going to be something required of him that will mean that he will actually have to give up his life. Greater love has no one than this, than one who lays down his life for his friends, Jesus said right in John 15. And that's exactly what Peter's going to have to do. That's why Jesus is pressing Peter, not only to reinstate him, not only to reaffirm that he's been forgiven because he's repented, unlike Judas, who just regretted and committed suicide. But Jesus is pressing Peter because not only will he have the new responsibility of shepherding the flock, the early church, but he's going to have the new danger and threat of not only persecution, being beaten, imprisoned, but ultimately being martyred for the faith. And so then Jesus says, verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this, Jesus said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. And literally, it's in the imperative, it means keep following. So what uh, Jesus was alluding to is the fact that Peter and the early church says, uh, authorities say that he was crucified, but upside down, Peter would be would killed for the sake of the gospel. Verse 20, Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, following them, the one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So, so Peter is, after he has this exchange with Jesus, Peter is probably a little, maybe a little uncomfortable, uneasy. Who knows? I mean, we don't know. But he immediately goes to, hey, what about John? Because that's whom the disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loves, right? What about John? What about this guy? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus says, hey, don't worry about that. You need to focus on me. Keep following me. Verse 23, Therefore this saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? So because Jesus said that you know, he's going to remain, what this would mean is that John was obviously wrote this, he was alive, he was up in age, and people were wondering when he wrote this gospel, oh, maybe he's not going to die. Everybody else has been martyred, but you haven't. And so this attests to the fact that John, the apostle, 
uh, lived pretty long life. In fact, according to Eusebius, the early church historian of the, I think, third or fourth century, he said that uh, John lived until his 80s or 90s. But, like he says, it doesn't mean I'm not going to die. Uh, Jesus did not say that. Jesus was simply making a point to Peter that if, if I want John to live until I come back, that's not your concern. Your concern is the mission that I have given you. And the mission that I have given you is to shepherd the flock. The mission that I have given you is to tend to the needs of new believer and old believer alike. The mission that I have given to you is to love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. To love Jesus is the same as loving God. To love God is the same as loving Jesus. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three in one. Now it's interesting that there were three, do you love me? And I don't know, I haven't seen anything where it's a direct reference to the Trinity. It isn't a direct reference to the Trinity, but it's just interesting that Peter denies the Lord three times. And then he has the opportunity to say, yes, I love you, Lord, three times. And we know that God exists as one but three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then we read in verses 24 and 25 at the very end of the Gospel, this is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. This is very significant because what is being said here is that the author of the Gospel John is testifying. That word means like in a court of law, that this is the truth. And I saw these things and now I'm the one who's writing them down. Now the phrase, we know that his testimony is true, can be taken to say that already he was recognized as an authority, he was trustworthy by the church, and so everybody in the church would say, yes, we can rely on him. He's one of the inner circles. He knows Jesus. We trust him. So that is what could be, be meant when he uses we. And I, for my part, know that his testimony is valid. So like I wrote here, some scholars have also noted that a different division of one word in the Greek would cause verse 24 to be read. And I, for my part, know that his testimony is valid. So it's basically, hey, I know that what I'm telling you is, is true. Bottom line, it's the apostles' way of telling us this can be taken to the bank. It's trustworthy. Then he says, verse 25, and there are also many other things which Jesus did. Now when John wrote this gospel, most likely Mark was already done, Luke was done, Matthew was done, Paul's letters were out there, there were a variety of accounts, the church understood them, uh, the word was out, and so John was saying, hey, I know there's a, lot, uh, there's a lot more that can be said and written about. Which, if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Now, some scholars like to say, well, that was just hi hyperbole. Well, maybe it was hyperbole, but when you think about it for a moment, when you take the life of Jesus, when you take his ministry, when you take every single event, every single word, every single miracle, every single of those had, it's like that uh, throwing the pebble in the, in the river or in the, in the lake. 
It's a ripple effect. And you have all these people who are being affected. And then that changes their life. And then because it changes their life, their life changes others. And so you can see where that, I'm going with this. That all of us you know, have our own little worlds, and, and, and we, and, but we're all interconnected. And everything we do affects someone else. And so when you talk about Christ changing lives, it isn't just changing your own life. When Christ changes your life, He's actually changing other people's lives through you. And it just goes on and on and on, all to the glory of God. And so it's really neat how we end, because in a way, we end where we started, like I said. Jesus and Minister started in Galilee with the disciples. Obviously, He was in the wilderness before He started the official ministry. But He was in Galilee... He called the disciples. Most of them were fishermen. It's in Galilee that he ends there. I mean, obviously, they go to Jerusalem and they wait for the Holy Spirit and, and then the ascension and all that. So they do go back. But, but for John's Gospel, you know, his first miracle, the first sign that John records is a wedding uh, in Cana of Galilee. And we also have uh, Peter being reinstated that while we don't have the words that we find in Matthew uh, with Peter, with the confession of Christ, actually not just in Matthew, but in Mark and in Luke, remember when Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? But then he says, but who do you say that I am? And it's Peter who gives the truth of who Jesus is. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. So you don't have that in John's Gospel. I mean, in, uh, you don't have that in John's Gospel. What you do have in John's Gospel is Peter affirming his love uh, for the Lord three times. And isn't it interesting that we end in John 21 with this emphasis on love, and it is in John's Gospel that we have God's love celebrated with, for God so loved the world, right? In John 3.16. Jesus said, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. Jesus said, just as I have loved you, so you must love one another. The world will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And so you can see how John 21 kind of is a great ending point for his gospel, the good news. Isn't it great that we have good news in a world of fake news? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this opportunity to study your word. We thank you for the, the richness of John's gospel, how it uh, is so well laid out. And that the ultimately is just to let people know that Jesus is true, that He's alive, that He has risen from the dead, and that He loves each one of us. And that when we have a relationship with Him, it's having a relationship with the One who made us all, with ultimate reality. It's to understand our purpose and to know why we're here. So we pray, Lord, that we would take what we've learned together to heart, that You would use it to encourage us, and that we wouldn't just stop here, but continue to be students of Your Word each and every day, we thank you, Lord, for the power of prayer. I thank you for everyone who's praying for my mom. We do pray for her. We pray for healing. We pray for strength. We pray for comfort. Pray for safe travels. We pray for so many others who are fighting illness that are members of our parish and other extended family members. We pray your special blessing upon them from this place tonight. And we pray for all of us that you keep us healthy and strong, that we would be able to continue to do your good work and accomplish the will you have for each of us. We thank you and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to the Transforming Lives Together podcast, a ministry of St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church in Tonawanda, New York. To learn more about our church, please visit stbartston.org. Again, that's stbarts, T-O-N, 
www.saintbartholomews.org. You can also connect with St. Bartholomew's on Facebook and Instagram through the handle at St. Bart's Anglican Church. And you can connect with this podcast on Facebook through at Transforming Lives Together Cast. We hope you will tune in next time as we begin a new series taught by our curate, Father Andrew Tebow, titled Anglicanism 101, Why We Do What We Do. Until then, we leave you with these verses from Peter's first letter. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. God bless.